something in your life today. And I really believe that. So I'm going to pray now that every one of us will stay open to what God wants to do today. Is that okay? Father, we love you, God. By your spirit, you're here. You inhabit the praises of your people. Where two or three come in my name, your word says you're there in all of your glory and presence. You're the same yesterday, today and forever. And God, every person in this room is unique and valuable and precious to you. And you know every one of us by name. God, you want to do something in our lives. Lord, I pray that our doors will stay open. And that you will do what you want to do in our hearts and lives today. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Why don't you take your seats. If the youth, if you want to make your way out, just leave it there. Um, what's going to happen this morning is a little different. Is that the stewards are now going to come and give you a sweet. Now, the only thing I want to say when they give you this sweet is you must not eat it. Now, <laughs> now, you may say, I don't want to eat it anyway, so I don't want one. Have it, because the purpose is that you don't eat it, all right? Now, if you choose to, you can, but I'm asking you not to eat it for a really important reason, okay? So they're going to come and give it as quick as you can, guys, if you can get those sweets out. I'm hoping I've got enough. There's quite a lot of people here today, so if there's not, then share. <laughs> You're not eating it anyway, so it ain't going to matter, is it? <laughs> Along with this series that we're doing is a book called The Art of Living Beautifully, written by Steve Chalk. It's available either to buy or to order from the coffee shop. A friend of mine gave me this book a few months ago, and I thought, oh, it's a bit of a girly title, The Art of Living Beautifully. But it's an amazing book, and it coincides with a lot of stuff that's been happening in my life, experiences and, and different things that God's been teaching me about. And last week, we began this series, and we're carrying on. This is week two of this series. Now, I don't know about how many of you wake up and look at one of those in the morning. Yeah? How many of you wake up and look at that and go, yeah. Yeah. They're just guys, a few guys. Put their hand up there. It's really sudden. That's because you don't look in them at all. Looking at today. Um, when you look in the mirror, I wonder if you ever ask a question. I wonder if you ever think about, there is a me that I want to be. Anyone ever thought that? There's a me that I want to be. And you've got like a clear picture of the you that you want to be. But there's also a me that I don't want to be. Anyone identify with that? And there's a sense in which sometimes when you look in the mirror and when you look back at yourself and you think, oh, I don't want to be like this. Anyone ever thought that? You know, <laughs> there is a me that I want to be. There is a me that I don't want to be. There is a me that I pretend to be. There is a me that I think I should be or I ought to be. There is a me that I think other people want me to be. Isn't that right? I want you to know this morning that there is also a me that God meant you to be. Now that's very subtly different to the me that you want to be. You see, you may want to be on X Factor or Strictly Come Dancing or one of these kind of things. And you know, that's what you dreamt about all of your life. And your life is not going to be complete unless you get on the stage and all of that rubbish. That's the me that you want to be. But there is a me that God meant you always to be. And last week, the, the question that, was, that I was considering really was the question about stories. Does my life story make sense in this book? That's what we were looking at last week. If you weren't here, you can download it off the, uh, off the web, off the podcast or get a CD. And I was asking the question, 
if my story, the story of my life was written in this book, the Bible, would it make sense? Would it connect? Would it, would it belong or would it feel disconnected and weird? And that was the, the whole issue around the whole thing of story. This week we're looking at pictures because I've got another question that's really haunting me. And this is the question. Will I ever become the me that God meant me to be? Anyone ever ask that question themselves? Because sometimes you look in the mirror and you think, oh, I'm still struggling with that. You know, and I don't think that's what God meant me to be. Am I ever going to become the me that God meant me to be? Do I have a picture of what that might look like? And actually, do I believe that what I do now could well affect, change or shape that picture in the future? In other words, there is a me that God wants me to be, but he's not going to force that on me. I could change the picture of what that looks like. I want to show you a clip from a, uh, from a TV show called Honey, We're Killing the Kids, all right? Which is not a suggestion for any of you, all right? This is the title of the show. Basically, what happens here is that um, uh, some psychologists go into a family and they look at the kids in the family, they look at the family dynamics, and they say, Do you know what? If you carry on, all right, with these kids, with this diet, with this lifestyle, with this kind of psychological environment, we can show you through technology what they may look like uh, when they're 40. And that's what you're going to see. Now, can I just say a few caveats about this, all right? It's very simplistic. I'm not saying I believe that this is true. And what God is after is not what we're like on the outside. That's a whole different deal. But what I want you to see is this idea that the picture of the future can be affected by how we engage with the present. Is that all right? So take a look. Honey, we're killing the kids. Okay. Quite sobering, isn't it? Now, I'm not suggesting that... That's how it's all going to be, okay? And it isn't about on the outside. But that idea that the picture we see of who we're meant to be can change depending on what we do in our lives, I think is true. And I want to talk to you this morning about how do we become the me that God always meant us to be. And do you know what? I don't know how we do that. I'm not going to give you 10 easy steps because I don't believe in the whole cause and effect thing taken to its extreme. Because life isn't like that. But what I do know is there's two things I want to share with you that I know that if you do these things, you will not become the the picture, the, the me that you were meant to be. So I don't, I can't give you ten easy steps or seven, you know, keys to this or all that kind of stuff. But I can tell you this: that if you do these two things, you've got no chance of becoming the me that God meant you to be. And the first one is this: you must not ever give in. Mustn't give in. If you've got a Bible, turn with me to Genesis chapter 25. Now, when I was in the States at a, a leadership conference uh, a few weeks ago, a guy called Andy Stanley, who leads North Point Church in Atlanta, brought this teaching. So I want to credit him because it's his teaching. It was in the context of leadership, so I've, I've adjusted it slightly and put a few other things around it. But it was his teaching, and I want to give credit to that. And he was talking about not giving in to our appetites. Because we all have appetites, don't we? Did you know that? We all have appetites, and not just food, but all kinds of things, as we're going to see. And I don't know how we can become the me that God meant us to be, but I do know what will stop us. It's when we give in to our appetites. Let me read this to you. Genesis chapter 25 says in verse 24, When the time came for her to give birth, there were twin boys in her womb. The first to to come out was red, and his whole body was like a hairy garment. (laughs) That must have been a shock. So they named him Esau. Whoa! After this, his brother came out with his hand grasping Esau's heel. So he was named Jacob. Isaac was 60 years old. Again, another shock, having twins. When uh, Rebekah gave birth to them, 
The boys grew up and Esau became a skillful hunter, a man of the open country, while Jacob was a quiet man staying among the tents. Isaac, who had a taste for wild game, loved Esau, but Rebekah, the mother, loved Jacob. Once when Jacob was cooking some stew, Esau came in from the open country famished. He said to Jacob, quick, let me have some of that red stew, I'm famished. Jacob replied, first, sell me your birthright. Look, I'm about to die, Esau said. What good is the birthright to me? But Jacob said, swear to me first. So he swore an oath to him, selling his birthright to Jacob. Then Jacob gave Esau some bread and some stew. He ate and drank and then got up and left. So Esau despised his birthright. This is a story about appetites. We all have appetites. They were created by God, but sin distorted them. The thing about appetites is that they are never fully or finally satisfied. In and of themselves, we never get finally or fully satisfied. And they always whisper now and never later. Have you noticed that? Appetites always whisper to you now and never later. If we give in to them, if we let them control us rather than us controlling them, they can shape the future picture of who we become. It's happened in Esau in a very dramatic way. You see, the birthright here, which is at the centre of this story, was a big deal in Bible days. Okay, th- this had loads of implications, financial implications. It had implications in terms of authority and influence of who this man was going to become. He was the firstborn. The birthright was his. He was going to be made for life financially, have authority and influence over many people. And he was most importantly going to have the blessing of God over his life. How many of you know that's a big deal, isn't it? Financially secure, authority and influence and the blessing of God. He traded all that for a bowl of stew. Because he could not control or master his appetites, his picture changed completely. The picture that God had for him changed because he could not control his appetite. None of us would be crazy enough to do that, would we? There's no followers of Christ that would trade the future picture of what God has for them just for an appetite, would there? None of us would be crazy or stupid enough to do that. What happens is that there's a real power situation. How many of you got an older brother? Who's got an older brother? Okay. Great situation. The younger brother is in power, isn't he? Because the older brother comes in and says, look, 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 I need that stew, I need that stew. You know, I'll do anything for that stew. Younger brother thinks, I've got him, doesn't he? I wonder what, I wonder what if in our day he might have said, right, so anything I can, give me a car, give me your Xbox, I'll go out with your girlfriend, whatever it's going to be. But there's a power situation And Jacob says, actually, I don't want your car or your Xbox or your girlfriend. I want your birthright. I want want the thing that's most important. I want your birthright. Absolutely amazing. You see, our appetites always whisper now, never later. And they are never fully or finally satisfied. So why is it that for a bowl of stew, okay, this is the closest I could get, okay, last minute. Why is it that for a bowl of stew... That Esau would give up everything for that. What is it about appetites that are so powerful? Psychologists tell us that there is something that goes on in the brain when it comes to appetites. This is fascinating to me, okay, to, to, to study this. You see, Esau comes in and he says, I'm about to die. I mean, he's not, is he? 
Do you know what I mean? I mean, every day he's eaten and he goes out. This is one day. He's not been like 40 days without food. It's just one day he's coming from the field hunting. And he says, I'm about to die. He gets all dramatic. Now, that was Bible days. Men are never dramatic in our culture, are we? I mean, whenever we're ill, ladies, you never hear a whimper out of us. You never hear a moan. You never hear anything. When it's time to go Christmas shopping, you never hear anything. When our football team loses again at home to Stoke, you never hear a word. You never hear... Oh, I love it. I love the power. You never hear anything because we're not... But Esau was dramatic. I'm about to die. He's clearly not about to die. So what's going on that makes the appetite so powerful in his life? Psychologists tell us two things happen in the brain. First thing is called impact bias. Where there's like a chemical thing that goes on in our brain that with appetites that are really you know, important to us, something happens and it magnifies that appetite out of all proportion. What it does is it lies to us. It tells us that this thing is a seven or eight when actually it's a two or a three. And I thought about this and I thought, that's true in our life when it comes to fish and chips. See, we've said to ourselves, haven't we, that we're not going to eat fish and chips from the shop, okay, because it's just not good for us, not healthy. But you ever have that thing where you think, oh, I just really fancy fish and chips. And our brain starts to tell us that it's going to be a seven or an eight. And so we get in the car and we drive off to the chip shop and we queue up and there's the smell and it's great and it feels great and it looks great. And, and you open it all up and you put more salt and vinegar on it and you start tasting and you think, I was right, it's a seven or an eight. And then at the end of it, you look at each other and think, why did we do that? Because what's happened, what's happened is that our brain has lied to us. and said that's a seven or an eight when actually it's a two or a three. Something else goes on in the brain apparently called focalism. Where what happens is that your mind focuses on the appetite and it blots everything else out. You can't see anything else other than the appetite. If you, guys, you remember being at college or university and you saw that absolutely red hot babe that walked into the room and you could only see her. Sorry, she never knew you existed. But all you could do was to see her. Everything else gets blotted out. Does it make sense? And when I discovered that, I thought that makes real sense because for Esau, his appetite, his natural craving for food, he said it's a seven or an eight, it's a two or a three, mate. And nothing else he could see. Everything else was blotted out. All he could see was the appetite. And in verse 33, it says that he sold his birthright for a bowl of stew. How sad and tragic is that? I, I can just imagine if there would have been somebody there who would have said to me, sorry, 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 before you do that, let me talk to you about the future. Let me talk to you. There is a future picture that God has for you. But right now, you're destroying it. Imagine if he'd have said this. You see, if you don't do that, if you resist that, if you control that appetite, let me tell you what's going to happen. You're going to have 12 sons. And those 12 sons are going to become a nation. And that nation is going to get taken into Egypt eventually and sold into slavery. But I'm going to raise up someone called Moses. And it's going to go a little bit wrong. But then 40 years later, when Moses is in the desert, I'm going to meet him at a bush, which I'm going to set on fire to get his attention. And when he comes towards the bush, I'm going to say, I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Esau. And then 2,000 years later from that, God himself is going to send his only son who's going to be called Jesus and he's going to be born on the earth as the Messiah and the saviour of the world and this guy called Matthew is going to write a best-selling book and in that, at the beginning of that, he's going to write out where Jesus came from in the line and guess whose name's going to be there? Your name. 
But you're going to swap all of that for a bowl of stew. But there was no one there to tell him, was there? And so his appetite got the better of him. And in that moment, when he ate that appetite, the whole picture of his life changed. Of course, no believer would do that, would they? And I thought about this in my own life as a leader. And when I think about how many Christian leaders, because they couldn't control their appetite, whether it was sex, whether it was money, whether it was power, whatever it was, they couldn't master their appetite and the whole future went. See, there was nobody there to tell him, you're going to lose the respect of your kids. You're going to lose the influence that you had, that God's got for you. You're going to lose this and lose that and you're going to lose it all just for the sake of a bowl of stew. Our only hope, folks, is to reframe our appetites in the broader context of God's call over our lives. Amen? I don't know about you, but, well, I do know, actually. God has a call on your life. Do you know that? Every single one of you, you don't have to be up here with a microphone. God has a call over your life. God has a vision for your life. He has a purpose for your life. There is a picture that God has of what He wants you to become. And the only way that we can control our appetite is to reframe that appetite in the context of the bigger picture you know I've, I've I haven't got one bowl of stew I've got loads all right I'm a passionate person the downside of that is that you've got lots of appetites and I know there's been times in my life where I've been so close to just giving in to an appetite that would or could have changed the future for me and my only hope at a time like that is to look at that bowl of stew and say is it worth it because it ain't a seven or an eight it's a two or a three and God has a call on my life. And I don't want to blow that for anything. I'm thinking about a question at the moment. And the question is this. What picture do I see of myself in 10 years' time? It's a good question, isn't it? So what do I want to be in 10 years' time when I'm 33? What do I want to be in, uh, in 10 years' time? And, and, and I don't mean what I want to look like on that. I don't mean the, the whole thing. That's, that, that's irrelevant to me, really. It's important, but it's not important. But what kind of man do I want to be? What kind of leader do I want to be? What kind of follower do I want to be? What kind of husband do I want to be to my wife? What kind of father do I want to be? What kind of friend do I want to be? And the clearer the picture you have, the less the grip appetites will have on you. If you have this sense, I want to be like that. I want to be a person of character. I want to be this kind of man. The clearer the picture that you have, that you sense God has for you, the less the grip appetites have for you. Now, there are no guarantees there's no easy steps to this, but I do know that if we give in to our appetites, it will change the picture. It really will. And so I want us to think a little bit about this today, and I've got some other questions for you. So what is your bowl of stew? What is your bowl of stew? What is it that you find really hard to say no to? And I thought about this and I thought, I could do uh, like a list of all the different things. But the danger with that is that yours say, ha, hasn't got mine. Whew, I'm all right. I could miss yours out. But if I don't say anything, then all of you will probably just think, well, it's either food or sex. Can't think of anything else. And actually, there's a whole load of other appetites that we have. There are some obvious ones. Sex is an obvious one. And with sex, of course, comes the whole deal of pornography, masturbation, lust, and all those kind of issues. And before you think, oh, yeah, those are really challenging things for young people, they're really challenging things for people. If you have a pulse, they're issues. They are issues. 
and they can affect and shape the future picture of our lives. But there's other things as well, what I call comfort appetites. Food is one, alcohol is another, drugs, shopping, pleasure. And of course the thing about these appetites is they whisper now and never later and that you're never fully or finally satisfied. How many of you ever, when you go shopping and you buy loads of things with money you don't have, say, oh, that's it, my appetite is full, I will never shop again. How many of you, when you've had that meal that you, know, you didn't really want, but you, you're just totally full, I'm never going to eat again. You say it, don't you? But next day, you're going to die because you're starving. Because appetites never fully or finally satisfy. They always whisper now and never later. But you know, there are a whole load of other less obvious appetites, I think, that we struggle with. There's things like self-pity. How many of us, self-pity is our bowl of stew? You know, I, I ain't going to move on. I'm not going to move into who God wants me to be because I want to feel sorry for myself because I've had a bad time and it's been difficult and this is my bowl of stew. This is my appetite. And God's saying, listen, things have happened to you, but do you know what? I'm going to change the picture for you for the future. I have a picture of you in my mind of who you are meant to be. Unless you deal with that bowl of self-pity, you're not going to become it. How about running when life gets tough or when God gets close? How many of us, that's our bowl of stew? That's the appetite. That whenever it gets really tough or God gets close, we run. <laughs> Not physically, but you know, metaphorically, we run. Because God's got too close and that's our appetite. Perhaps it's selfishness, perhaps it's pride, perhaps it's workaholism. It's whatever it is. But what I'm saying is it's much broader than what we think. So what are you talking yourself into? What are you contemplating right now that your spouse, your parents, your kids, your friends would be uncomfortable with? You say, oh, but that's my appetite. And it's really, really important to me. And it's a seven or an eight. No, it's not. It's a two or a three. And it will blow the picture that God has for you. I can't tell you how many times I've wanted to wring people by the neck and say, if you don't stop this, the picture God has for you will totally change. Will totally change. God has called you to be a man and a woman of faith and of influence and of character. He's called you. He's gifted you. He's anointed you. He wants to use you to speak into the lives of other people. But because you can't control your appetite, it ain't going to happen. And you will blow it all for a bowl of stew. What are you doing that's not illegal or immoral, but you'd never want anyone else to know about it? And our only hope is to reframe these appetites in the broader picture of what God wants us to become. How many of you want to become what God wants you to become? Yeah? Then we have to say, that's the big picture. The bowl of stew. I'm going to master that. That is not going to master my life. I want to ask the band to come back. And How many of you still got your sweet? Those of you that have eaten it, you have proved my point. <laughs> What we're going to do this morning is Mark is going to come and, and sing over us really and then we'll kind of join in. And what I'm going to encourage you to do is I'm encouraging you to take the sweet that I've given you and that sweet is going to be symbolic or represent your bowl of stew. And then you might think like, like I do, I've got loads, but what, think whatever the Holy Spirit, whatever God or whatever comes into your mind now, say, oh, that's my bowl of stew. Now, if you want, you can eat it. You can eat the sweet. It's your choice. But remember that appetites always whisper now and never later. 
And you can eat it, but you'll never be fully or finally satisfied. And you know what? If we keep eating it, we'll change the picture of who we become. Or you can say, I don't want to do that. The picture of who God wants me to be is far more compelling than that bowl of stew. And so what I'm going to ask you to do as a responsive thing, and not just as a gimmick, but as something that I believe the Holy Spirit will use this morning, is come and put it in the bowl. And say, this is my appetite, but I'm going to come and put it in the bowl. Because I tell you what, my appetite for God and to become who God has created me to be is far greater than that. So why don't we stand? Father, as we sing this great song of dedication and as we respond, Lord, today, God, I pray, Holy Spirit, that you would really bring to mind right now what is our bowl of stew. And Lord, we don't don't know how to become the people that you want us to become, but we do know what will stop it. And this is one of the things. So Lord, we want to say to you, we we choose, we choose to say yes to you and we choose to control and to master our appetites and we surrender these things to you right now and God I pray by your spirit you would help us and strengthen us in this decision and that Lord that somehow the beautiful life that you've called us to live would just be enhanced today as we remind ourselves of how brilliant it is to follow you We do not have to submit to these things. They do not have to control us because the power of the Spirit is at work within us if we'll choose to engage. So help us in these moments, I pray, in Jesus' name. You can eat it or you can surrender it. It's up to you. God, I pray that the next time that we're faced with our bowl of stew. God, I pray we'll remember what we've done today. Pray we'll remember this. We'll remember that it whispers now, never later. Says it's a seven or an eight and it's not. And it could change the picture. And God, I pray that bit by bit we'll learn to master those things. And God, we will change and we will become the people you want us to be. And Lord, I pray if anybody here is contemplating something that you know, I'm not talking, guys, about eating a bag of fish and chips. You know, some of, I believe there's somebody here today. and It's not because it's prophetic, but just because there's a group of people. You are contemplating something which will totally change the picture of what God has for you in the future. Please, I beg you, don't do it. Don't do it. Get help. Speak to someone. Get someone to... Someone to be someone that can help you reframe it. Show you what will happen in the bigger picture of what God's got for your life. You don't have to do it. You don't have to do it. God can help you. Father, please, by your Spirit. Jesus' name, Amen. Amen. Take your seats. Thanks. The... um. I'm not going to show the clip, but the, there was another clip that we showed earlier on. At the end of the film, at the end of the, the series, they, at the end of the show, they got the parents back in. They said, listen, if you change the appetites, if you, if you alter all of that stuff, this is what they'll look like. And they look totally different. And, but it's not about the outward. It's about what goes on inside. It's about who we are as people. 
And I don't know how we can do that, but I do know that we mustn't give in to our appetites. And the second thing is that we must never, ever give up. Winston Churchill, you know the story, when he was uh, old, uh, was, was invited to um, uh, one of the great universities, I think it was Oxford or Cambridge, one of the universities, and was asked to bring a big speech, and there was all the people very excited. This was the man that led us through the war, great Winston Churchill, and he kind of shuffled up to the front, you know the story, some of you to the podium, and, and his whole speech was literally, never, never give up. And they went and sat down. I don't know how much they paid him for that, but that, <laughs> that was his speech, never give up. And I credited the first bit of teaching to Andy Stanley, the second bit of teaching I'm crediting to me, because this is some of my thoughts and ideas. But I honestly believe that the passionate pursuit of God is the answer to becoming God, the, the me that we were meant to be. See, we've just sung it, seek first the kingdom and all these things will be added. I don't know, I can't tell you 10 steps to become that person that God wants you to be, but I do know if you give up on the passionate pursuit of God, you'll never become it. Because it's only as we passionately pursue God that God by His Spirit changes us, the Bible says, from one degree of glory to another and He works in us according to His goodwill and pleasure, it says in Ephesians. God changes us to become the me that we were meant to be. It's not self-improvement. You see, self-improvement was never God's plan just as much as self-salvation is never our plan. How many of you are a Christian this morning? Some of you might not be, and that's fine. How did you become a Christian? Was it through what you did or was it through receiving what God did in Christ on the cross? It was that one, wasn't it? Nothing of yourself other than repenting and saying, God, I want to know you. That was it. And so we are saved. When we come to salvation, we come to a relationship with God through what he's done. And then we turn and we say, now I'm going to become the me I'm meant to be and I'm going to do it on my own. And that's how we live. So we say we accept it as a free gift from God. It's God's work in us. And then we turn and then we try and make it happen. John Ortberg calls it gap management. It's like there's, there's this me that we think we should be, but we're over here. So how do we get from here to here? Well, we need to do it, don't we? So what we do, and he draws it up in a circle or a cycle. He says, so we try harder. <laughs> that makes us weary. Then when we get weary, we quit. Then when we quit, we feel guilty. Then when we feel guilty, we try harder again. Anyone been there? In your spiritual life, how many of you have done that? Try really hard. Doesn't work. Feel weary. Quit. Feel guilty. Try harder. Oh, I'm here again. And he says this in one of his books. The only way to become the person God made you to be is to live with the Spirit of God flowing through you like a river of living water. You see, it isn't about how hard we try. It's about how we pursue God and how we let God by His Spirit change us to become the me that He always dreamed and knew that we would be and that we could be. Listen, I know that I am a better me when I'm closer to God. You know that? How many of you would agree with that? Not about me, but about you as well. <laughs> yeah, you really are. We know when you're not. <laughs> okay. When you're connected to God, when God's first... You carry less bitterness, you carry less stress, you carry less intolerance, you carry less anxiety. And it's not a science, it's an art. But I know that when God's speaking to me and I'm in a better place to go, I'm just a better version of me. And I know when I'm not, and unfortunately, other people do as well. And I want you to say, I believe that the picture that God sees of you is of you passionately pursuing God and God at work in you 
to create the you that he dreams of. Now, the challenge then is to never give up on passionately pursuing God. Now, there's a verse in Romans 3, which I think is a verse for our generation. How many of you are less than 40? <laughs> yeah, right. Okay, <laughs> now look at people when I say that. You know what? We, our, the younger generations growing up are growing up with a whole load of different cultural issues than we grew up with. It's often been described as the culture of entitlement. We're actually younger guys growing up. I'm not saying it's not our fault. This is the world in which we live in. Are creating a culture where everybody wants it now. We never want to wait for anything. And if it gets too hard, quit. Relationship, don't like it, quit. Job, quit. Church, quit. Walk with God, quit. If it gets too hard and I don't like it and it's too hard, then we quit. We give up. And yet in Romans 3, verse 3 to 5, how many of you, by the way, want to have a great character? Okay, three of you. That's really, really, really worrying. How many of you want a great character? Thank you. Well, this is how you get it. In Romans 3, verse 3 to 5, suffering produces perseverance or endurance. And perseverance produces character. And character produces hope, which won't disappoint us. And you see, we want the character, but we don't want what gets it. It's like we want miracles, but we don't want to be in a position where we need one. So we live so safe and so predictable, and we'd love a miracle, but we don't want to be on the edge where we would actually need a miracle. We want the character of God, but we don't want what produces it, which is perseverance. Which is not giving up on the passionate pursuit of God. And Paul says in Galatians 6 verse 9, you see at the proper time we'll reap a harvest. How many of you want to reap a harvest? If we don't give up. But we give up. And I want to say to younger guys that you know, you're growing up in a culture of entitlement which tells you that you should get what you want now and not later. That's actually not true. Well, it is true. You can do that, but there's an incredible cost. And you see, the other thing I think about younger generations is that you underestimate, or you, rather you overestimate what God will do in you in the short term. But you underestimate what God will do with you in the long term. So you overestimate. You think, well, I should be doing this now and I'm not God, so therefore, bang, and I quit. You overestimate what God will do in the short term, but you underestimate what God will do in the long term if you do not give up. Two weekends ago, I uh, went to Bulgaria to speak at a youth event, and uh, they asked me to speak on the subject, don't give up. So I'm on the plane, I'm flying across, um, and I'm thinking about don't give up, uh, and this. And then I thought, how can I illustrate this? And then I started to think about some of the people that I was heading off to see And I've been going to Bulgaria for 20 years. Some of my best friends live in Bulgaria. I've known some guys for 15, 16, 17 years. I'm just thinking about a guy that I knew when he was 11. He's now 23. Do you know what I mean? And I've travelled that distance with them. And then I'm thinking of other guys who I've known for a long time who are now are not walking passionately pursuing God. They've given up. Still my friends, but they've given up. And I'm thinking about that. And I'm also thinking about some of the people that I know in England who actually were passionately pursuing God, but now they've given up. And they might still come to church, because that's not what we're talking about. But on the inside, they've really given up the passionate pursuit of God. And as I'm on the plane flying across, I'm thinking, how can I illustrate this? How can I I, I convey? And then I'm thinking, hang on a minute. And I'm thinking of some of the people by name, and I'm thinking, how could he or she go from that to that? How does that work? How can they be so passionately pursuing God and then they're like, live like God doesn't exist. Like the things of God aren't important to them anymore. 
They don't move them anymore. They're not bothered. They're far more bothered about stupid things and childish things and earthly things. How can that be when they were there? And I believe that the Holy Spirit gave me an illustration which I want to share with you this morning. So I want my eight people that I've had uh, at the nine o'clock thanks for coming to line up. And this is like to visually kind of articulate what I think happens in the pursuit of God. You see, what I want you to do is to imagine that Dan is a picture symbolically of the passionate pursuer of God. All right, so get passionate, Dan. That, that, that's about it. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. That, that. And as it happened, this was totally by, I don't know, whatever. Rach, his wife, is the other extreme. Okay? <laughs> so she's going to turn her back. So that's a picture of someone who's totally turned their back on God. Now, probably at that stage, they probably have left church and whatever. But actually, my conviction is there's many people who turn their back on God who still come to church. But, but deep on the inside, they're not interested in the things of God. Not really. And the question is, how do you go from that passion to that total coldness? Well, here's the thing. You don't go from that to that like that. It doesn't happen. There's a whole load of experiences and things that happen in between. And as I'm sitting on the plane writing it out, God just kind of dropped these six things into my mind, which I shared with those guys, which I want to share with you. It's not exhaustive. You're going to look and say, oh, yeah, but what about this? There's probably loads more. But the point I want to get is this. You do not go from that to that without something else happening. So, Kirsty is kind of symbolic of the person who's given up dreaming. Just given up dreaming on God. Just like, you know, just don't have any more dreams. Just don't have any more aspirations. They're just like, just don't think that God has got anything else for my life. Perhaps life has treated you badly, difficult, and you don't believe that God has anything else for you. That's a stage which, if you give in to that, could lead to that. So if you turn around. Mark is symbolic of someone, it kind of connects to that, is given up expecting that God would do anything. It says of Gideon, when, when the angel came to see Gideon in the days of, when the Midianites were impoverishing the land, that Gideon said, where's all the miracles our fathers talked about? We don't see any of it. You've given up expecting. You don't believe that God will intervene in your life anymore. How many of you have prayed for someone to be healed and they haven't been? How many of you have prayed for someone to find faith and they haven't been? you prayed for a, a kid or you know, a son or a daughter to... And you just think, God, are you just quiet? What are you doing? And we give up expecting God to intervene. That's a stage that can lead us from there to there. We've given up expecting. We don't believe God will intervene anymore. The third one, Tim, it's kind of given up belonging. We've just given up really belonging in the family of God. Now, you might still come to church. You're even in a life group, but you don't really belong. I see it in people. I honestly see it. That moment when, do you know what? You're open and you're in community and you want people to speak into your life and you don't. Not interested. And you might go and go through the motions and say all the right things, but deep down you've given up really belonging. You got hurt. You got disappointed. You got disillusioned. And what you've done is you've shut up shop on the inside and you've given up belonging. And I tell you what, when you give up belonging, that passion that you've got for God